This is a talk by Matt Saratsky titled Liberation and the Heart Knot, recorded January 22, 2012, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, uh, as I said, this is a talk in response to a question that was put in the question basket. Actually, I think it was mailed to the center by Michael. Um, attention, Matt. So, that means it's my job um, to answer the question. And as uh, Mark mentioned, if you submit a question, you have the option of remaining anonymous, but you have to mention that. And I don't think you mentioned that. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't mention. It. So that's a good question. So I'm sure he's not. He's not. Uh, he's not shy about being outed. So this is from November, and it says, "Dear Matt." Last year in the practitioners group with Todd, we read the spiritual teachings of Ramana Maharshi. In the back of the book, notes page 109 and the glossary, there are some interesting definitions. Note number three says, three, the idea that one is the body is what is called Tridaya Granthi, knot of the heart. Of the various knots, this knot, which binds together what is conscious with what is insentient, is what causes bondage. Then, in the glossary, there are three definitions that relate to the knot in the heart on page 112 to 113. So, if you guys have that book, you can go Excuse look. Excuse me? Yes. Is that N-O-T or K-N-O-T? K-N-O-T. Yeah. Um, Chit Jada Granthi the knot between pure consciousness and the insentient body, the ego, the hatma buddhi, I am the body idea, granthi nasam, destruction of the knot of ignorance. The reason I'm bringing these to your attention is that during your awakening talk you said you felt the knot unravel. As you put it, the resistance just fell away. Then you went on to talk more specifically about the knot in the heart, and that you got to the point where I could feel that knot. I could feel that resistance, and this experience was literally the untangling of that. It's that knot or resistance that gives rise to our assumptions of separation, our delusion of separation. That was a quote about me. It was something I said a few years ago. Um, then Michael goes on to say, I think that is well put. Would you like to give a talk about the knot in the heart? I think I feel the knot in the heart. I notice a constriction around my heart when fear, anxiety, and anger arise. Do you have any specific practices you've tried in relation to this subject? And um, so that was his question. And yes, sure, I would love to give a talk about that. So here we are. And so I'm calling this talk Liberation, Liberation and the Heart Knot. So... The, the knot in the heart is a common concept in mysticism, especially Eastern mysticism. It's mentioned in Buddhism and Hinduism predominantly, um, but not just in Eastern mysticism, as we'll see. And it points to the very heart of the mystical quest, actually. Um, in essence, the subject is the subject of mysticism, and in my opinion, it's the only uh, subject worth pursuing in life, um, other than you know where to get a good meal, which I always seem to be able to find. Um, it's the only game in town, really. So, uh, because mysticism is the study of reality. So, if you're really interested in what's going on here, here this not in the heart subject is right in the center of it. And the, the term not in the heart, the term, you know, talking about the heart and talking about this, this sense of not, arises from mystics' experience. It's not a, just a philosophical term. You know, uh, for instance, something like, um, you know, the term mukti or liberation is a little bit more, you know, a little more philosophical. I mean, freedom is something that we all have some sense of. But um, the not in the heart arises from kind of a, a real embodied experience. But uh, in way of introduction, suffering is and arises from identification with separation. Identification with separation between I and other. And this is experienced as a closed heart. 
So we all have experiences of the heart opening. But mystics maintain it's possible to have an open heart indefinitely. And furthermore, that this is our true nature. So let's talk a little bit more about the um, idea of the knot in the heart as just sort of a, uh, a way of introduction to the talk here. So in the East, there is a concept of subtle energy moving in the body. And the deepest uh, place where that happens is what they call the central channel. So these, the subtle energy is like, um, you think of a bioenergy, it's like electricity, but it's related to consciousness. It's a subtle dimension of experience. And in the central channel, that is the, the deepest level of, of this. So this is something that arises from meditation experience. Um, it's another phenomena, but it's associated with deeper states and uh, also with liberation in some sense. So it, along the, the central channel, there are uh, energy centers that are called chakras. And there's different ways of laying out these chakras, depending on if you're in Tibet or if you're practicing Bun Dzogchen or you know, uh, uh, if, if you're reading something that might come from Atlantis or something. So you can go and you look up chakras, and some people have 12 chakra systems, some people have 5 chakra systems. Most common is 7. And that comes from the Hindu tradition. And the center of those there's, is the heart. There's 3 below and 3 above, and the heart's in the center. So the center of the center is the heart. And in the, these mystical traditions, opening the central channel, getting the, the prana or the chi or the subtle energy to move freely, unobstructedly through the central channel, is identified with liberation in the schools that talk about the central channel. There's plenty of mystics that don't ever talk about it, so it's just another... Um, another way of talking about things. So, Jigme Lingpa, who is a, a great Dzogchen master, wrote, How wonderful! There is no need for me to boast about my wisdom, because the winds and channels, that's the winds is a term for the subtle energy, of apprehender and apprehended have entered the central channel. The tendency to fix flickering awareness or sinking and scattering have been purified. In my self-liberation, there was no diminishment of luminosity. What happiness! So that's an example of liberation, talking about opening the central channel. So a, a little more generic approach to uh, looking at uh, subtle energy. Um, you could talk about just three centers. I'd, I'd like to talk about three centers. Um, the body, which I kind of you know, associate with the lower part of the body the mind, which I sort of associate with the head, and the heart. And so this is a generic way of kind of laying things out. The body is associated with perception. So perception is the five senses. You know, sight, smell, touch, taste, hearing. And that includes the world as experienced. So that's, that's how we experience the world, is through those senses. And then the mind is the conceptual faculty. So this is how, how we conceive the world. It's our thought field. Now remember, what we said at the beginning, the mind is what deludes us. The mind is the power, has the power to create distinctions and separate the world. So the raw, naked experience of the world is just sensation. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. The heart is associated with our sense of identity, our sense of beingness. It's the this, this sense of I am. I, I am, what am I? Well, the mind says it's, you're this or that or this other thing. Come on in. There's a couple of chairs up front and there's one over there, one over there. <clears throat> so we, we just uh, started... Uh, talking about the knot in the heart. And uh, just mentioned that body is associated, the, the bodily field is associated with our perceptual faculties, the five senses. The mind is associated with our 
conceptual faculties, our, how we conceive the world, and the heart is associated with our sense of identity. Just bear with me. This is just one way of laying things. So, according to the mystics, the heart is actually the source of the mind and the body, in a sense. That our true nature is actually hidden within this. And in the, in the Hindu traditions, they say our true nature is being consciousness bliss. So, being eternal, self-effulgent, Existence that is not opposed to non-existence, you might say. Consciousness is the awareness. We all have the experience of awareness. And bliss, meaning that this true nature is of its own, uh, of its own being, of its own uh, isness, perfectly flawless. It's perfectly blissful. It's, there's, there's no suffering inherent in it. Sri Muruganar, who was a long-time uh, disciple, devotee of Sri Ramana Maharshi, the great Hindu uh, guru, uh, in the Garland of Guru's Sayings, which is one of my favorite all-time uh, texts, says, The mind's light, which reveals the false phenomenal world, is but reflected as in a mirror. The true, bright, self-luminous light is being awareness, the heart from which the mind arises. And this true nature is revealed once the knot, the knot in the heart, and the knots that bind us to this separate experience are unraveled. Rumi writes, so here's an example of a Western mystic, or Middle Eastern, but, you know, uh, from the, the um, tr- tradition that comes back to the Judeo-Christian tradition. The heart is tied in a hundred kinds of knots, and nothing loosens knots but the wine of the spirit. So, if the subject-object distinction is the root of bondage and creates this, or is essentially identical with this knot in the heart, then let's look into it a little bit. The, The basic... Distinction here is between the self and the world. So, subject-object, what does that mean? That sort of sounds philosophical. Well, you and everything else. So, under delusion, we take for granted that I and everything else are two separate things. Never the twain shall fully meet. The mystics say that's not true. In the Shinshin Ming, uh, by Sung San, the third Chan that's Chinese Zen patriarch, says, the object is an object for the subject. The subject is a subject for the object. Aspire to realize that the two fragments are fundamentally the one void. The one void is the same as the two, and together they contain the 10,000 things. So, what is this one void? So, ultimately, mystics attest that this void, that everything is consciousness, or being consciousness bliss. But when we, at the center, like to use the term, we say consciousness itself. And so, fundamentally, then, the heart, our identity, is consciousness. Therefore, the heart is everything. And so we could say the world arises from and as the heart. And we're here speaking of not the thump, 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 um, the spiritual heart. Again, Sri Murganar As since misled, the ignorant man perceives the world as a collection of various objects. So the sage, whose knot is cut asunder, sees only the ground, the one awareness, 
present and shining everywhere. So, how do we transcend the subject-object distinction? How do we untie the knot in the heart? We can talk a little bit about what people have said of this first. The resistances to untying the heart knot in Sanskrit are known as the samskaras and vasanas. So these essentially are energetic, you could say energetic, subtle energy, whatever they are. They're these p- patterns deep in our, uh, our being somewhere. Latent impressions, which are samskaras, and they, these latent impressions produce tendencies. So this is a philosophical approach to looking at this. But I think it speaks to our experience because these can include, maybe we could call them genetic patterns, past life patterns, family of origin patterns, our habits, social and cultural conditioning. We, in general, at the center just call this conditioning. Conditioning. Basically, they're considered a latent tendency if they're self-centered. So, uh, if it's a non-self-centered tendency, like um, my ability to use the English language, to what extent that is, uh, it's not so much a problem. It's not a problem at all, as long as it's not self-centered. Because self-centered conditioning causes suffering, because it's based around this sense of self, this sense of separate existence. In Buddhist theory, uh, they speak of the um, storehouse consciousness. So there's a variety of different, this is from the the, um, Abhidharma uh, aspect of Buddhist tradition. So they have the concept of the alaya vijnana, the storehouse consciousness. And that's where your your sense of self comes from. That's another theoretical way of talking about it. In Advaita Vedanta, we've quoted uh, Sri Murugunar, who's an Advaita Vedanta uh, teacher. This this sense of self, this uh, the deep uh, conditioning, is at the seat of the self, or the heart. They call it the heart. So, in my experience, as far as I can tell, um, and according to these traditions, at root, this is this energetic resistance to awakening to seeing what we really are creates or arises as this knot at the the heart in the central channel. So there's actually an experiential thing you can feel. At least once once it's been untied, you can go, oh. So this basically means that at the very source of our experience, we have a mistaken assumption of separation. This assumption is created and fed by deep impressions or inclinations. So these impressions, for our purposes, the most important thing to know about this is that these impressions arise as mental distinctions. And again, it's taking these distinctions to be real that maintains our experience of delusion. Another way to look at this is we can call, because the mind creates distinctions, it cuts things into this and that. The mind is often considered to be like a sword. So in the tarot, in the Western occult tradition, the, the, the suit of swords is the suit that's associated with mind, with the mental uh, aspect of our experience. And there was a quote that I saw in a, a video of uh, kendo. You guys know what kendo is? It's a, a Japanese uh, sword art, but it, they usually practice it with bamboo sticks so they don't chop each other to pieces. And there's a quote, and I don't know where it came from, but I just thought it was great. It said, the ordinary swordsman cuts one into two. The samurai cuts two into one. (laughs) So, no, but this is actually very good because the sword of the intellect divides the world. It creates distinctions. But the sword of prajna, the sword of wisdom unites the world. It is our insight into unity or non-duality. So, practically speaking, 
How do we see this? How do we proceed? It's actually our ordinary experience that is our pathway to the truth of an open heart. And we all have experiences of truth. We all have experiences of happiness. Otherwise, how could you, how could we intuit that happiness is possible? We'd have no clue. And I would say that maybe there are some people that are so deluded that they really have no clue. And, you know, and they, and that's, you know, that's very sad. But if you didn't have that intuition, why would you be here? So I'm going to take three examples of an open heart today and, and use them as a way of hopefully pointing out how we all have experience of this and give you some places to look in your own life. So these three examples are love, peace, and joy. So first, love. When we love someone deeply, we feel fulfilled. So I would say lovers are here to teach us about our true nature. And in truth, all is love. And we'll return to that. Peace, when conflict subsides, we feel at rest. Conflict and disharmony are here to teach us about our true nature. In truth, all is peace. Finally, joy. When we reach a goal or are surprised by our good fortune, we feel joy. Fortune, good or bad, is here to teach us about our true nature. In truth, all is joy. So knowing that we all experience an open heart in the context of love, peace, and joy, what closes the heart back down? How can we discover that love, peace, and joy are our true nature? How can we find permanent love, peace, and joy? So let's examine these experiences a little more. In love... There's no distance between lover and beloved. They're of one flesh, as it's said. In peace, there's no conflict. Struggle comes to a rest. In joy, there is no striving, no grasping. It's what, what was yearned for is present. So, the happiness of love, peace, and joy entail... The cessation, the ending of the sense of separation and love. The cessation of the sense of struggle and peace. And the cessation of the sense of striving and joy. And what do all three of these have in common? Trick question. Sense of self. To be separate, to be struggling, to be striving. In short, to be suffering. So, can anybody relate? So the truth is, as the mystics attest, the self does not exist. Unfortunately, under delusion, we are convinced that we exist as a separate entity. We can't understand how we could possibly experience the world without this lens of self. This is because we identify again with this subjective pole of experience it's created by the mind's power to form distinctions, as we mentioned. And we also constantly ignore the raw, naked suchness of reality and overlay our mental interpretations. And again, these mental interpretations are not themselves the problem. It's taking them to be real or reification we like to use that word here, that causes suffering. Zen master Hakuin said, in truth, like two mirrors reflecting each other without any image between them, 
Mind and objects are one suchness. Things and self are not separate. So how do we penetrate this veil, this assumption and deep experience of separation between mind and objects, between self and world, between subject and object? How do we untie the knot and experience the world nakedly with an open heart? First, I'm going to tell you. So first, in order to untie the knot, we must, as we talked about at the beginning here, gain freedom from the thinking mind. So we must learn to be able to ignore thought. And as we've talked about, this is the purpose of spiritual practice. Meditation, mantra, yogic asanas, etc. Ramana Maharshi said, all sadhana, all spiritual practice is to stop the mind. It's not easy. And that's why here at the center we facilitate an ongoing practitioner's group and uh, practice meditation regularly and go on regular retreats. And basically this is the purpose of a daily meditation practice. Hopefully all of you have some experience of freedom from thought. But in any case, for everyone, I cannot more strongly recommend that you make this the primary effort in your life if you are seeking freedom, to attain freedom from the thinking mind. Zen master Huang Po said, if you would spend all your time walking, standing, sitting or lying down, learning to halt the concept-forming activities of your own mind, you can be sure of ultimately attaining your goal. Since your strength is insufficient, you might not be able to transcend samsara or suffering in a single leap, but after five or ten years, you would surely have made a good beginning and be able to make further progress spontaneously. So the subject of meditation is not the primary thrust of today's talk. But the second uh, thing that we must do to... Uh, to gain freedom, to uh, have insight, is to really inquire into our experience of suffering and happiness. So without consciously, assiduously, carefully inquiring into our own suffering, there is no way for us to identify its cause in our own being. The only way out is through, as they say. For as the Buddha taught... We must therefore carefully and, and clearly mark and remember that the cause, the germ of the arising of suffering is within suffering itself and not outside. And we must equally well remember that the cause, the germ of the cessation of suffering, of the destruction of suffering, is also within suffering itself and not outside. To this end, let's re-examine our experience of love, peace, and joy. Love. So when we make love, when we are in love, we share identity as lovers. The sense of the couple becomes our prominent identity. The boundary between I and my lover dissolves. We're fulfilled and happy. So the inquiry here is, how can I disappear if I exist? For what is truly real must remain in all conditions, in all states. It could be noted that a profane sexual relationship is one where the participants are not dissolved, where they remain as separate, selfish, suffering individuals. Now, of course, we all probably in our deluded lives vacillate between these poles, but for it to be loved, there must be shared, the shared identity. And this is a big key to the truth. So to the extent that we can dissolve with our lover into complete selflessness, to that extent we are practicing the high tantra of mystical union and physical form. 
We cease being our ego selves and become the archetypal lovers, the union between yin and yang, Shiva and Shakti. This energy of selfless union is what creates the cosmos according to the traditional cosmologies. So as an example, by way of example, not only have I experienced this bliss of union with my wife, but more importantly, I've experienced the projection of difference upon her that gives rise to suffering. So seeing that, seeing that active ignorance is the point of this insight practice. But in my experience, by releasing all grasping for or resistance to love, the loving becomes spontaneous, free, and profound. And moreover, from this union, to speak to this cosmological aspect just briefly, we produce children. These children reflect, they both reflect and express aspects of both of us. And this process of creating children, you could say, is the divine's creation of the cosmos as the family. And family, as we know from our experience, is the source of our constructed identity, the beginning of human life. So, but we must remember it's not the production of our ego selves, but it's the divine active in human form. So if we can see in our own experience how the divine is actually coming through and as us, this can be very profound insight. So intimate love relationships are one of the greatest sources of suffering under delusion. But spiritually they can be the highest form of surrender to the divine. Let's talk about peace. When we lay down our sword and rest in peace, I don't mean underground, we express our trust, our feeling of security, of safety. We cease resisting. We cease being fearful. We manifest the peace behind all conflict. This is the peace of fearlessness. Fear is based on separation and produces aggression often. This is the fight-flight response. But spiritually speaking, ultimately, this energy of fear is simply the energy of expansion, of spaciousness. In the Tibetan system for transforming emotions, fear is known as the wisdom energy of clarity. So if we, rather than recoil from expansion, allow it, tremendous energy is released, and great peace can be felt. So, by way of example, in my past, I, I've been a martial artist for, since I was 14. And um, I practiced a system, Shaolin Eagle Claw Kung Fu, which is a very intense practice, very athletic. And we'd go to tournaments. And I didn't like going to tournaments, but I did it because I thought it was good for me. And we'd train really hard for these. We'd practice three hours a day or more. Very intense practice. And there was lots of focus, lots of drive, lots of intention and effort. Sort of like a semi-professional athlete, maybe. But there was this warlike intention, too. There was this, this uh, real aggressive intention that we were trying to focus. So, but performing these terms was very scary. It was, I was always very scared. And, you know, I'd have to demonstrate a form and do it as fast and as clean as I could, as, you know, several times, and then fight, you know, several different people. And Finally it was over, and afterwards we'd go drinking. <laughs> and I'd always be in this really blissful, high, peaceful state. And it was as if I was completely invulnerable. Com- completely, completely uh, invulnerable. And I remember the last tournament I went to, I had, the, I had this really strong feeling of this. But I had this thought, I had this insight, this sense of peace shouldn't require that much effort and fear beforehand. And this was the beginning of the end of my use of that, that method of practice. So if we release our attachment 
to the story that is surrounding our experience of fear and are able to rest in the present moment, we can lay down the sword of mental conflict right now. We don't need to go through, we don't need to go compete in the tournament. We can do it right now. And we can rest in peace despite the circumstances. doesn't matter what's, this, what's happening. And this peace goes beyond all worldly concerns. It's the recognition that there is no self to ever be harmed. In the Vajrayana Buddhism, they have a concept of the diamond body. And what, what that means is this indestructible awareness. Awareness can't be cut, can't be burned, can't be drowned. It's ever-present, completely invulnerable. And that's fearlessness and peace. And then the third of our examples, joy. So when we get what we want, or we lose ourselves in a creative activity, we feel joy, we feel happy. The phenomenon of boredom is the opposite of this. Something's not quite right with right now. We see this a lot in our kids, uh, especially now that they've been going to school. There's you know, a lot of conditioning is getting put on them now. And <clears throat> so something's not quite right. They want to be, we want to be distracted. But what's not right is our sense of self. It's our ego fixation. <clears throat> Joy is always an expression of the inherent creativity of the world. It's an appreciation of this beauty. And this creativity is innate to the cosmos. It's what comes out of the union of yin and yang, like we talked about before, of love. But if we identify ourselves as the producer or the creator or the enjoyer of beauty then we reify, we take real this sense of self. Joy is never experienced by a person. Joy is always the dissolution of the person. We dissolve and awareness of beauty arises. So, for example, most of us have some, ex- most of us probably have some experience of graduation of some kind, middle school at least. So, when we graduate, or it could be when we um, uh, pass a test um, or any kind of benchmark thing, all striving is over for that time. We relax with our friends, we toss our caps in the air, we stop seeking. So creativity is God's activity, not people's. Enjoyment enjoys itself. The seeking for joy veils joy. So it's it's always right here. The beauty of the creation of the cosmos is always right now. And we can enjoy it if we allow ourselves to dissolve. If we can see beyond our separation. So, how do we do this? How do we dissolve the heart knot and rest as loving, peaceful, and joyful awareness? I can't really tell you how, but have faith. This love, this peace, this joy is already what you are. So develop the mindfulness to observe when and how you create separation, conflict, and grasping. Moment by moment, in your own mind. It's happening right now. This divisive activity of the mind is what knots the spiritual heart. Nizargadatta Maharaj said, The mind creates the abyss, and the heart crosses it. It's one of my favorites. Say that again. The mind creates the abyss, and the heart crosses it. I didn't hear the last word. Crosses it. Crosses it. 
If you will see a David, if you observe, if you are persistent, that these qualities, love, peace, joy, do not pertain to an object at all. They arise as an experience of your own actual nature. So for example, my wife, as a separate being, is not the source of love. If she were, when she is cranky, I would be loveless. Just saying. The truth is, her true nature is always love, no matter how cranky she is, even if she doesn't realize it. Nobody escapes the finger pointing. True love only arises when the sense of self to be separate dissolves. Rumi writes, Your beloved is not form, whether your love is from this world or that. Why do you leave the form that you love when its spirit goes? Its form is still there. Why have you had your fill? Oh, lover, look carefully. Who is your beloved? As for peace, the bar and the Guinness, I can't drink Guinness anymore, but that was what I used to drink, after the tournament or other celebration is not the source of peace, despite many people's repeated attempts to make it so. It's the cessation of resistance that allows us to experience the peace of our true nature. If it were the bar, there would be a lot more happy drunks. And this is not the wine of the spirit that Rumi writes about when he says, as we said earlier, the heart is tied in a hundred kinds of knots and nothing loosens knots but the wine of the spirit. You know, the Muslims uh, weren't supposed to be uh, drinking alcohol, so they're allowed to use wine as a symbol for the intoxication of God, the divine. True peace only arises when the sense of self to be in conflict subsides. For as Meister Eckhart said, Therefore, make a start with yourself and abandon yourself. Truly, if you do not begin by getting away from yourself, wherever you run to, you will find obstacles and trouble wherever it may be. People who seek peace in external things, be it in places or ways of life or people or activities or solitude or poverty or degradation, However great such a thing may be, still it is all nothing and gives no peace. People who seek in that way are doing it all wrong. The further they wander, the less they will find what they're seeking. They go around like someone who has lost his way. The further he goes, the more lost he is. Then what ought he to do? He ought to begin by forsaking himself because then he has forsaken everything. And finally, graduation or other achievements are not the source of joy. It is the cessation of effort that allows us to glimpse our true nature. If it were an event producible by effort that caused joy, then why is it that some events produce joy for some but not for others? Joy is our true nature and is only obscured by the sense of effort, of doership. True joy arises when the sense of self to be striving is released. Sri Muruganar says, The sage whose knot of doership has snapped finds no more duties to discharge. In his awareness there is no other no objects, hence no doubt and no delusion. Held only by the light of being, the sage's mind may as of old seem to taste, smell, see, hear, touch. And yet by strength of self-inquiry is from the world cut off. Those who live within the heart, the life of pure awareness find, no happiness in trivial pleasures of the senses. 
Is not that still, silent state of being the one boundless and unbroken bliss supreme of Brahman, the ultimate reality? In conclusion, the heart knot is another term for the delusion of separate self-existence. It veils our true nature, which is experienced as love, peace, and joy, even within delusion. There are other ways it may be described or experienced, of course. These are just three biggies. Untying the heart knot, then, is synonymous with liberation. And liberation gives rise to a permanent end of suffering. This end goes beyond concepts and experiences, even of love, peace, joy. cannot be described. It is up to you to discover what you really are, to untie your own heart knot. Padmasambhava, the founder of Tibetan Buddhism, said, The ultimate body is itself a perfect purity, a personal experience, the undivided basic nature. This knowing, tranquil as ultimate reality's state, the supreme fruition that transcends every attainment, springs from you and within you is attained. I hope I answered your question, Michael. Thank you for the opportunity. Are there any questions this morning? Yes, Pat. When you're talking about that, I guess we have to be enlightened when there's no fear of being harmed, you know. And does that, uh, I'm asking that because, well, I'm thinking of the bodily harm that we, where we feel pain. Or um, I, I, when I think of, as an American that hasn't gone through a lot of things, when we hear things on TV about other nations that are in poverty or starving, and uh, as much as I can, as you know, a product of an American, America, get sad about that and think, God, how would that feel? I couldn't have food. I would have gone when it's cold and go, God, what if I had to be in this for hours and hours? And it's fearful. Mm-hmm. When I, I only put myself in that, I don't walk around that way, but when I hear these awful things and poor people and poverty right. and sickness, does that, I mean, when you're enlightened, can you get rid of that kind of fear? Because that's pretty, you know, terrible. I mean, fear is transcended in enlightenment. Hmm? Fear is transcended in enlightenment. But that doesn't mean that other beings don't, you know, but continue I mean, to experience fear. You wouldn't have those fears if you were starting to death or if you were freezing well, to death. Again, I am not, you know, I've been born into a relatively, looking at the world stage, cush existence. So I don't have yeah, the person, yeah, most of us in this room could say that. You know, some of us might have gone through some hardship like war and things like that. But um, I can only speak to the experiences I've had, you know, and the experience of suffering that I've had. Um, but I have the faith that. You know, let's say our economy collapses and we're all, you know, cooking slugs for dinner or something. That I was still that that, that would not change truth. See, because this truth is the truth prior. It's the truth prior to any experience. It's actually what's always here, and so under delusion, we're always we're always experiencing through this lens that's created by the thinking mind that says this is. This is how things are, because you listen to your mind, and it, it creates the story, and that's what you've always had to think to, you know, experience with. It's actually a filter. It's, a, it's something that we're adding. And what we're saying is deeper than that. That's where you want to go. You want to look deeper than that. And then no matter what experience it is, it all of one taste, as the Tibetans, the Dzogchen Tibetans say, this is all one taste. To love, join, peace. All goes back down to love, join, peace. Well, those are three uh, examples that I use to try to get people to look into their own experience, you know. And and so, yes, I would say that the ultimate reality; those are pretty good descriptors. But again, any descriptor is just a pointer. It's another mental 
you know, construct. And hopefully we all have some experiences, at least one of those, and you can go, oh, okay, that kind of makes sense. And it's a place to look. So it's, it's a pointer. Yeah? Um, I remember reading in the, in the scriptures, one of them is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. It's uh, paraphrasing. Paul is speaking about what uh, examples of love. And he was um, pretty much saying that I know that I'm also known as he's looking in the mirror. So just it was just showing that oh, I'm equal with God, and God is equal with me. So what left do I have to fear? And then people can choose whether to embrace that gift, that they are the gift, and then they can choose to work with that like God. And if not, you know, that's the choice. It's still a choice. But we can still keep moving forward, and then those who want to choose that embrace, they'll do it with us. If not, you know, that's the choice we keep moving forward. Holding that truth that we mm-hmm. got to get. This beautiful quote. And what I would the only thing I would add is that as long as you feel there is a choice, mm-hmm. choose wisely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, Eric. So, on the heels of that question, I mean, um, so we were sitting in the kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. We experience in a fairly abstract way in the morning after some tea this sense of spaciousness and freedom, mm-hmm. but off the cushion, when we go and experience the world, and we don't have the safety of our little soft cushion, mm-hmm. um, the world starts bombarding us. I know everybody has this experience, whether it's, oh, I haven't had my coffee this morning, or I just got in a car wreck, or whatever, from the most mundane little suffering to the most extreme break in your neck, or whatever. How do we continue to embrace the love, the joy, the sense of freedom in the midst of all those things which will inevitably happen to us? Whether we lose the use of our legs and we can no longer experience the physical freedom with our body, how do we maintain that awareness or striving or knowingness that there is love within all that suffering. Because it's inevitable. There's never going to be a time, except with like the most lucky karma you could get, of not having any of that. Yeah. So this is you know, this is the really the big question. This is the the you know, how do we wake up? Because there is a distinction between pain and suffering. Or um, a neg- what could be considered a negative circumstance and suffering. And suffering, there's always, at the center of the suffering, there's always the poor me, the, the sense of separation. And so the, the spaciousness that we cultivate on the cushion, the purpose for cultivating spaciousness ultimately is to, when you are experiencing suffering, can you have the spaciousness to, to see that that self at the center doesn't actually exist? That it's a conglomeration of thought patterns, memories, thoughts about what might happen, um, and feelings. So, for instance, it's not a neck break like you had, but you know, when I, I hurt my back about a month ago and I was on the couch for six days, I didn't know how long it was going to take. You know, I just knew that, okay, you know, this is bad enough, I need to lay down, I couldn't even roll over. So, I had a great time. I mean, really, I got a lot of writing done. I got to watch a lot of Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> it's the only vacation I'm going to get. I'm self-employed, you know. So, you know, it was a little hard on my family because, you know, I was pretty much next to useless. But, other, you know, other than feeling for them, it was, it was actually quite blissful because I wasn't, I just, I didn't know what was going to happen. But the truth is you never know what's going to happen. See, so we're attached to our idea of what's going to happen. And then when we realize, well, that's not going to happen, what is going to happen? We're attached to our story. And freedom is freedom from everything, including our own story, even the good ones and the bad ones. So, but that is exactly where the rubber meets the road. You have a sense of peace, bliss, freedom, spaciousness while you're sitting. You go out into the world, and the world smacks you around. So you have, to, you have to have faith that there is something there for you to discover. If you're suffering, there's something there for you to discover.
So, in your own experience, you'll find out. The question just popped in. Well, hold on. I thought I had another hand up Go here. For it. Was there somebody else that was raising their hand a second ago? Yes, Sherry. I'll come back to you. Um, Remember. You, you touched on this a little in your introduction to meditation, but I'm wishing that you would share more about, as you have in class, about uh, the center and focusing. Yeah. Uh, that center okay. And where exactly it is? And uh, you mean the abdominal center and everything? Yeah. Um, okay. Briefly. So what Sherry's brought up is that we have a practitioners group that um, the one there's several, but the one I'm leading, we've been doing some subtle energy meditation methods, and I've been sort of developing a little bit of a, a, a basic curriculum along those lines um, that hopefully will be useful for center practitioners in the future. And the, the first concentration method is what I call abdominal center meditation. And it's um, using the, the point behind the navel as your center of attention and following the breath, like I mentioned. The only added pieces to that is that you, um, what can happen if you're doing this type of practice consistently is you can start to harness the body's chi field or energy field and then use that for... Um, to actually help stabilize your attention and things like that. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I'm thinking what you told us about um, the sense of coming home to ah. there and why that is. Okay. Um, I think it's a little bit beyond the purposes of today's, uh, uh, today's discussion because what we're trying to do today is point out... What's that? Uh, put a question in the question mark. Put a question in the question mark. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit beyond today's discussion. But thank you. Yeah, and that's a good question. Yes? So, um, food for thought. Tickle the brain. Okay. So, um, what's getting us to believe that we aren't loved? It's got to be the ego. Okay. So, when we get... When we let that go, then we realize we're back in our womb, right? Dead center middle. Absolutely. And it's not just loved, because loved implies separation. It's love itself. Without the ED. Yeah, without the ED. <laughs> don't need the ED. EDs. Don't they have something for ED? No. Yeah, they do. Yeah, Charlotte. <laughs> Yes, Wesley. Um, we talked about encountering the world. I would want to say that we never encounter the world. We encounter sense impressions, that, and we take those sense impressions and we postulate a world. We imagine the, this must be a world out here, but actually all we have is these sensations. Right, so that's why some mystics will say, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk about it being empty. So the emptiness out there is just sensations. But the, the other side of that is that you have to be careful not to say that then there's absolutely nothing. Right? Because still there's something arising. But what is it? So that's a good point. So it, if you can get to the point in your practice where you recognize all sense impressions to be transient, impermanent, uh, that's that's... That's that emptying. And then also recognize your own sense of you know, the story about yourself to be just thought, transient, and permanent. And that's what Joel calls kenosis, the emptying of self before the recognition of what this is. So, but on the other hand, you could also say that's what the world always was. That is the world. It's just that we think it's something out there. Well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. You go find out, Wesley. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. A friend gave me this equation some time ago. Suffering equals pain times resistance. Shins and Young. Shins and Young? Suffering equals pain times resistance. Or maybe to the power of resistance. Cube. Cube, yeah. Well, the point he makes in that is that you can, uh, if you want to transcend suffering, you can either lower 
pain, or you can lower the resistance. Ah. So it's a factor. You can leave the pain as it is, but if you lower the resistance a lot, you lower suffering. But the only problem to that is that, of course, pain is inevitable. You know, birth, old age, sickness, and death, as the Buddha said. <laughs> so ultimately, it's not ultimate, but it is a method. That's the method, that's the method under delusion. Pleasure, not the pain, right? But, you know, after a while we realize that, that this doesn't work for very long. It's not a permanent solution. Actually, just to be clear, that was Shinzen Young's point in, in using that, was that instead of trying to avoid pain, yeah. if you could establish more equanimity, then you can alleviate suffering without getting rid of pain. I'm, I'm sure that was his teaching, and I know that he works with people under pain and teaching mindfulness practice to people who have chronic pain and things like that. So, yeah, he's a good teacher. Any final questions? I think we have time for one more, if there is one. Talk to me after. Wesley? Well, I'll go. Um, as you know, I've been uh, sitting with Tom Kurskar, and I noticed uh, a, few, a few sessions ago, I mean, there's meditation and a talk, and then sometimes there's time to come up and talk to Tom and so on. And then there's a, finally there'll be a few moments, and then he'll do a uh, thank you for salsa, and he'll bow, and we all bow. Right after that happens, is the best meditation. It's like, you know, when everything is over, then, oh my, it's so silent, and so pure, and so open, and so, you know, relatively free of soft thoughts. So I've gone back to that in my meditation and done more just not doing meditation. Um, and in the midst of that kind of meditation, there's, there's the sense of having to let go of myself. And, and, uh, and there's a real sense of fear there, too, because it's like, you know, well, if I let go of everything, you know, and where am I going to be? You know, I'll be in the deep blue sea or something. But, but as, as I as I understand what you said, you said that if you if you that if fear is still there, then the ego is still playing a role somehow in what's happening. That's true. Yeah, fear is just. It, Undiluted fear is experienced as this wisdom energy of clarity, like the Tibetan says. So it's this expansion, you know. So your heart might be beating a thousand miles a minute, but we're all expanded now. Yeah, you guys feel how big it is. So in the just a couple more comments on what Wesley said. So in the Dzogchen tradition, they talk about uh, the highest practice of meditation being undistracted non-meditation. So there's not, an, there's not a single pheno- aspect of phenomena that you're concentrated on, but not for an instant are you distracted at all. You're not resisting. Yeah, you're not resisting anything, but you're also not... So in this quote uh, from Jigme Lingpa, the first quote I read, actually... He says, because the winds and channels of apprehender and apprehended, that's subject-object, have entered the central channel, the tendency to fix flickering awareness, that's to concentrate, or sinking and scattering, that's to be distracted, have been purified. And in my self-liberation, there was no dis- diminishment of luminosity. How ha- what happiness. So... You know, my pointing for you is to just what you're doing sounds right on the money. To in your regular when you are sitting before he says thank you for satsang, try to see if you can find that. I guess you are finding it that little kernel of fear, and look into that. That's a little bit of sinking or scattering or tendency to fix flickering awareness. Some aspect of that. Okay, you really want to talk, it's okay, go ahead. Okay, so when we let go, I find that um, our calling just breathes. 
Our what? Our calling. Our calling. Becomes in sync in our lives. Finding the way through, you could say. It's more like if I let go of everything of me, I find that life becomes more in sync and things like happen like this. I need to go with this person. I need to spend time with this person. Mm-hmm. Oh, I need to do some writing poetry. Oh, I need to sing. It just, like, it's like that, those fish, you know, those circles, yeah. like a teamwork of. It becomes spontaneous. In sync. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what the, in the Tao they call Wu Wei, non doing, yeah. effortless action. Just let it be. There's no actor, there's no doer. There's just this spontaneous creation every moment. It's always different, always fresh, always new. Okay? Welcome. Until we meet again, peace to you all.